Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I am thrilled to have you here this week. This week, we are bringing on uh, Jennifer Grossman of the Atlas Society uh, onto the program this week. I invited her on, and I wanted to talk about none other than, yes, obviously, you guessed it, Ayn Rand. Um, This week, or excuse me, this month, I should say, is Women's History Month, and this is obviously a very liberty-oriented program, in case you haven't noticed. Um, So, in my mind, I thought, what better way to celebrate Women's History Month on this program than by going over the life and times and the works of a, a woman who is a real champion of liberty, that is Ayn Rand. So I asked Jennifer to come on, and she graciously said yes, um, and we, we get into a wide uh, array of topics to include her writings, her life, her work, as well as uh, Jennifer's history and, and how she came to, to be overhead of the Atlas Society. So it's a very good interview if you wanted to know the history of Ayn Rand um, and how she came to be. This is the the episode and the interview for you. So without further ado, please sit back, listen, and enjoy my interview with Jennifer Grossman on Ayn Rand. All right, Jennifer, welcome to Maliberty. I am thrilled to have you here on the program today. It's great to be here. Um, so before we get into um, some of the some of the more really juicy topics uh, surrounding Ayn Rand. Um, I do want to uh, kind of delve into your backstory a little bit and how that transitioned into your current role at the Atlas Society. Sure. Well, um, I got a call one day from David Kelly, the philosopher and the founder of the Atlas Society. And uh, at first, (laughs) I thought it might be a crank call. Why would uh, David Kelly be calling me way out here in Malibu and um, be asking me if I might be interested in the job of running um, the organization that he started almost 30 years ago? Uh, And I said, well, how did you find me? And he had heard from a couple of different sources in his search for a new uh, chief executive for this organization about that crazy woman out there in Malibu who uh, who's passionate about Ayn Rand and has been driving around with her Ayn Rand license plate for 20 years, but who had also worked uh, in the think tank world at Cato and government at the White House um, and mostly in the corporate sector at uh, Dole Food Company and also um, at Forrest & Little, which is a private investment firm. Mm-hmm. So uh, thus began a process of uh, talking and interviewing and talking to um, the chairman, Jay LaPere, and being uh, flown out a couple of times and grilled, I mean really grilled, <laughs> by the entire Bored. Uh, I mean, it was pretty aggressive, and I don't think I've ever gone through such an intensive um, vetting since uh, even my um, State Department days. So, uh, so it was it was uh, good. I think they, you know, they really wanted to make sure that they had the 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 right person. And I think, in a way, we we it was sort of a match where we both couldn't believe, like, you know, 
is this for real? Right. Uh, I was like, when, when they were saying, and your phone number will be 202-A-Y-N-R-A-N-D. I really, I thought, you know, somebody is just punking me. This can't really be happening. <laughs> um, and they were also saying, well, why do you want this job? Like, you know, you live in this beautiful house in Malibu and drive a sports car and you've done all these things. Why would you want to take – and, I, you know, I, I realized as I took it over that, that we, we had a lot of work to do. Uh, it's like any organization, particularly any organization that has um, continued in uh, this age of – massive disruptions in the way that we communicate and the way that we uh, aggregate socially and the way that we persuade people. And um, I mean, to a T, almost all of the legacy think tanks that were started, you know, before 1980 haven't really, um, in part because they haven't been exposed to those forces of competition, uh, haven't really been forced to make those changes. So just, you know, updating the organization and really taking a look at are we accomplishing our mission and uh, what will happen if we continue down the same path of utilizing the same programs um, and, and you know, what will happen if we change things up. And the, the message that I got very strongly um, two years ago now from the, uh, the trustees that were bringing me in I, were to aggressively experiment and uh, and be willing to take risks, be willing to make mistakes. <laughs> Just in heaven, in heaven. Um, of course, never fun when you do make mistakes, and I've made a lot along the way. But um, but going in there and not purposely trying to screw things up, but purposely knowing that, I, you know, if I'm not making mistakes, I'm actually not doing my job because I'm not pushing boundaries and I'm not taking risks. Um, so. And I'm not being able to then learn and, and, and adjust. And in a way, that's kind of a, a metaphor for, you know, where we are as a society and where we are as a culture and how we try to prepare uh, or, or prepare, protect. we protect rather than prepare young people for the real world by um, shielding them from any kind of adversity or discomfort or, or mistake or unpleasantness. And as a result, you know, when they do find those, um, those challenges in life, mm -hmm. they're just really completely uh, un unprepared. So, so that's really been the, the path of, of, these, of how I got to the Atlas Society and then a little bit about the, the path of the, the past couple of years. So where I, I'm I'm a little curious. Where did the spark of interest in Ayn Rand begin? Well, you know, I I think that I had been sort of primed to be interested and receptive to her message of individualism being brought up in a a very um, liberal, very idealistic, but pretty uh, philosophically, ideologically, politically monochromatic um, con conformist background that was consistently on the on the left, and um, never feeling quite you know comfortable with it. Never quite feeling comfortable with this narrative that I was getting in school that somehow um, uh, you know because I was white and or I was not of this ethnic group or that ethnic group or 
um, what have you. I, I somehow had a privilege that was an insult and an unfair advantage to other people. And I was like, wow, how did I like end up with a big white privilege score? I mean, did you guys see what they tried to do to my to my great grandparents over there in Eastern Europe? And they tried to wipe us out. How did I get up like on the first on the list? No thanks. Um, so. You know, I just, I it just never sat well with me. But I didn't really understand, like, what, what was this malevolent force coming at me? What, what was this uh, sort of dislike and and um, kind of vicious orientation that I was getting from peers uh, for things that I thought were things that I was striving so hard for to, to achieve, to, to be the best, to, to compete, to, to win, you know, and this was not getting like kudos from peers. It was, you know, getting, um, kind of, uh, you know, ostracism. And so I, you know, I, I think at that time became very, very inward and, and very much sort of, um, I think shy, um, more shy than I might've been because, uh, I just was, um, not getting positive reinforcement for just a natural inclination towards, um, working hard and, and achieving, uh, things. And so, uh, it, it wasn't really till I was at the Cato Institute that I, I fully, locked on to Ayn Rand's books. And it was um, it was there, it's a libertarian think tank, and uh, yet, you know, there, there, there is an influence from Ayn Rand, but of, of course there's always been this historical tension between libertarians and, and objectivists and Ayn Rand, and Ayn Rand calling libertarians the hippies of the right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and, and then other objectivists sort of slavishly following her the letter of her law, um, not always being uh, receptive or welcoming to libertarians. And so, um, but I, I did manage to uh, find some, some um, friends at Cato that, I remember one day we were around the water cooler and somebody was saying, uh, yeah, well, who is John Galt? <laughs> I I said, yeah, yeah, who who is John Galt? And you know, they kind of laughed, good one. And uh, I was like, well, I don't get this. I'm like, no, really. Who 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 are you talking about? And so uh I I was pulled aside and I was like, Are you serious? You really how could you not have gotten in here and not have read this book? Get you know, you got one chance. Here, take this book, go home, don't come back till you read it. And I, you know, I came back, but I didn't stop with reading it. And I ended up just um, reading, reading everything, including her unpublished um, works and, and being very, very inspired, not just uh, by the incredible works of dramatic art um, and epic fantasy, you know, that she mm-hmm. created, the integration of of plot, theme, and, and characterization, which are just um, really uh, genius efforts and, and results. But then later her distillation of her um, views on philosophy and just also, I'd have to say, her personal narrative. I mean, you know, I, I don't believe in conflating Ayn Rand 
um, the, the person with the, the philosophy and she, you know, certainly had a lot of rough edges and many of the same, very, very, very same traits that helped her succeed were, would become, uh, things that made her life harder for her later on. I always say your greatest strengths are your greatest weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it, it happens to be true that, that perseverance, that ability to shut out criticism, um, would then become sort of a, a, a tendency to, to shut out criticism, which uh, sometimes is, is not really helpful in terms of growth and, and uh, adjusting and improvement. But, um, but yeah, but to just, I mean, you know, this is Women's History Month, okay? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, yeah I couldn't wanna... think of a more perfect uh, more perfect historical figure to to do this uh, in Women's History Month than uh, than Ayn Rand for for this show. So I I do want to get into a little bit of her background, and you you created um, some some interesting follow up questions, especially where where you mentioned sort of her rift with with libertarians uh, and libertarianism. Um, as opposed to objectivism, but can you give us a little bit of a background uh, in, in Ayn Rand's life and who she was specifically? Sure. You want it in normal voice or do you want it in a Russian accent? <laughs> Whatever you feel comfortable with. <laughs> I should start practicing because I've got actually a living history um, gig coming up in a week and a half. But anyway, um, I, I will, uh, uh, maybe next time, but, right, right. um, so yeah, so Ayn Rand was born in February of 1905. Um, and when she was 12, uh, she was born, let, let's just start with that. She was born Elisa, Elisa Rosenbaum was her birth name. Um, her pa parents, uh, Anna and Zinovi um, owned a pharmacy. At that time, you know, if you think of it, that um, life for Russian Jews was not had not been easy. You know, there had been pogroms. The the, the white Russians had, in in many cases, villages where Jews had been living this this um, this cancer. Anti-Semitism had was very strong in Russia, and that the whole villages would be burnt down. There was all kinds of laws of what Jews could do and couldn't do. Saint Petersburg was one place where they could live, and and uh, being a pharmacist was one profession that they could have. And so. Um, so they, they did. Ayn Rand uh, was the eldest. She had two little sisters. Uh, she really looked up to her dad, which I thought was very interesting. She, she didn't, she wasn't as close. Uh, she didn't have the same sort of esteem for her mother. And you can see that played out a, a little bit dramatically in We the Living, which is my favorite one of her novels uh, and the most autobiographical, her first novel. And so I, I think it's almost sort of, if you could actually apply the word naive to Ayn Rand, which I guess you, you might in some cases, but um, but that that when I say naive in terms of the, the literature of a, of that that um, authenticity of a of a real like a nineteen year old girl writing her her first no novel in a book that she in a in a language she didn't understand, so um so it's really it's a beautiful read you know keeping also in mind that sort of um, context, but so yeah so when she's twelve, and she's got two little sisters, um there is there's riots in the street there's 
uh, there's bloodshed in the street, and there's there's a civil war, and uh, and there's you know people setting stuff on fire, and it's pretty. I mean, you know, she was it's pretty pretty frightening time, and um, and she's watching it from the window of her apartment, and then, but you know, probably thinking this is just not just gonna it's not really happening, you know, but it it was really happening, and it did happen to them. And uh, soldiers came to their home, to their apartment, and they uh, they they liberated. And she's watching, you know, her father being humiliated by these soldiers, and uh, who are really, you know, clearly, even a little girl, you know, little kids can sometimes see what's really going on, and she's seeing thugs coming in and and robbing her family, but and rather than just normal thugs, they're they're calling it. In the name, you know, of your brothers, we're giving you this wonderful opportunity to to give to your brothers, to live for your brothers. That is the highest good. And then, of course, that's something that you'll see, if you know, when you read Anthem, her novella. You know, you'll see this language being used um, in an almost poetic, uh, very very simplistic format. And so, so yeah. Thank you. Hand the keys over. Hand the cash over. Uh, we'll take it from here. Your apartment. Yeah, yeah. Guess what? You're doing the home sharing before it even was cool. <laughs> and it's not going to be something of your choice. You know, share your apartment with a whole bunch of people. And so, um, you know, her, her family became almost homeless uh, for, for many years. And again, you'll, you'll see some of that. Um, discussed or, or, or dramatized in We the Living. And uh, I mean, there were just times where they didn't have enough to, to eat. And uh, the, the father took them out of St. Petersburg, um, for, to, to, hoping that if they went to another um, part of Russia that they'd be safe or that there'd be you know, uh, um, more, more food, more, more opportunity. And there wasn't, so they just eventually returned. Um, and she she went to uh, to school, and she excelled at school, and she was not shy about that. You know, she was very smart. Um, she was, you know, as as some of these uh, just prodigies are, just a little bored. And so she was writing writing her stories in her notebook as as the teachers were going on, and uh, and but she's trapped. You know, she's trapped in this ugly gray evil um country now which has become evil because of because of its its values and its principles and what it's doing to people and um and she's seeing though you know in in a very oblique way in the propaganda films by her own country that are trying to show these these fat capitalists as the as the uh, villains, but again, like as a young person, you can kind of tell. Wait a second, all right, well, this is this wasn't made here, you know. And 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 I don't, you know. So there actually is a world out there where there there could be a car such as this, there could be a dress such as this, there could be a world where people are, are drinking champagne. That's not happening here. She wanted to go to that world, and um, and she had an opportunity. A, a lottery is really kind of a a miracle, if we believed in miracles, which we don't. But um, and, and she uh, and she came uh, on a boat all the way to the United States, and uh, eventually made her way to Hollywood, um, and just 
took any job sewing buttons on <laughs> costumes in the wardrobe department. And then just uh, started to try to write anything that she could get her hands on and um, writing scripts. And, and she, she could kind of, she was reading a lot. So she could see, well, here are the, the ways that these, these are being structured. And so you can then also see that um, a lot of her novels take some of the devices from that that time in, in the you know the four, 30s and 40s um, from how uh, plots were being structured, at least love triangles, which was a classic Hollywood device, which you'll see again and again in her literature. And um, and then she she met uh, her husband, she got married, and uh, and then yes, she she wrote a, a play. She wrote um, a, a screenplay. She uh, and then she eventually wrote her big first blockbuster uh, novel, which was *The Fountainhead*. Mm-hmm. And then that was followed by *Alice Shrugged*. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm curious, where do you think that that sort of love of writing um, originated from? Was that something that uh, sort of was dwelling in her? Uh, back in in her home country or was that something that kind of just sort of spun out of her when she got to America? I think it was uh, from her own country. I mean, you know, um, her one of her best friends was, I think, the the sister or the cousin of Nabokov. And so there there was still a very uh, literary intellectual set um, of a ferment even at that time. And um, I, I think that uh, she, you know, it's like, it's not like being born a freak, but I mean, she's just born like super different. I mean, you're, if you were born and you're a little kid and you're seven feet tall, right? Or you're born with another arm or you're born like being able to run 20 times faster than everybody. She's, she's just, you're born a Beethoven. She was just born with this, um, incredible mind that was able to devour and consume, integrate, understand, and iterate upon a lot of information, um, and also relatively sophisticated, you know, um, philosophical content and literature. And so uh, I I think also um, she felt a a bit alienated from her, her peers um, partly because she had this, you know, personality that wasn't super warm and fuzzy and she didn't really go out of her way to, to make friends, you know, and do all the things that, you know, or you need to do to make friends that <laughs> make yourself useful to other people because other people are also have self-interest as their higher value you need to be useful to them. So, um, so she felt a little alienated. She was disappointed. She, she didn't see people that were like her. And so, um, so she wanted to create those people, those 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 people, her fantasy world people that were like her. And and writing was a way to do that. Writing was a way for her to have a conversation with someone of her intelligence. And sometimes that meant just having a conversation with herself in her mm-hmm. diary. Um, but otherwise, it meant to project a, a world of of um, of heroes of the kinds of people that that she would like to to have in, in her world, her, her, her playmates. And, and these became eventually the characters that, that populated her books. Um, so she wrote obviously a lot of fiction, but she also wrote um, a lot of nonfiction as well. And, uh, and out of that, I, I think sprung this idea of, 
of objectivism. Can you explain to us sort of the basics of objectivism and what that is in in contrast to libertarianism? Sure. Well, I mean, libertarianism is in many ways the so the uh, political branch mm-hmm. of the of the philosophy of objectivism. So um, objectivism is a, is a, is a full fledged philosophy, you know, so it, it talks about metaphysics. It talks about epistemology. How do we know things? It talks about ethics. Like how do we treat each other? It talks about politics, right? It's laissez faire economics. That's pretty close to libertarianism. Um, but it also talks about aesthetics, talks about art. So, it, it's a, it's well-rounded. It talks about a whole a bunch of different uh, aspects of existence, and um, which includes libertarianism. Um, but it's 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 broader than that. And I think that even you know to this day, part of the tension is that um, people that are, are objectivists or that uh, are kind of inf- they're influenced and motivated by um, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, that they are, think a lot about ethics and they think about capitalism, not just that it works better uh, as a system, but that it is morally superior, even if it didn't work as mm-hmm. well, right? Mm-hmm. Because it has a respect for the individual and that it starts with individual rights. And so that's a sort of a a moral perspective on a political system as opposed to a, a consequentialist perspective. And I think even from a pa- practical point of view, there, there needs to be that integration because, I mean, how many times have you gone to a conference or talked with uh, someone and, and there's just so much frustration. It's like, really? Do we, how many more Venezuelans do we need? How many more North Koreans do we need? Are you, you seriously want socialism in the United States? What, you know, what fantasy world are you living in? And um, I think that that frustration will continue and and there, the the answer that I have when they ask how many ta- how many times will socialism need to fail before we learn the lesson, I, my answer is an infinite time, an mm-hmm. infinite number of times. There is not a number of times that will <laughs> be adequate to to actually convince people because it's it's not it's not the lessons, it's not the facts. It's this this deep soul connecting. Uh, seductive moral appeal of socialism, and unless that is countered uh, with a with a different um, appeal, a different moral appeal, a different uh, moral center of gravity, then uh, then we'll always be having this Groundhog's Day uh, debate over and over again. Um, so you mentioned earlier uh, about some of Ayn Rand's opinions about liber- libertarians and libertarianism. Um, was she just entirely rejecting of the ideology, or did she just think that it had some of the pieces but not the full puzzle, or what was sort of her objections there? Well, uh, you know, I think it's it's probably along the lines of the of the latter, and um, there there are some very good uh, biographies of Ayn Rand that uh, can go into a little bit more of, of what her sort of psychology might have been. I, I, I think, you know, she, she, she called them the hippies of the right, 
she felt that the uh, sort of anything goes sort of liber- libertinism mm-hmm. was um, was often being uh, melded with libertarianism, and that's you know not something that that resonated with her, um, and uh, and that um, evading you know a, a, a um, opportunity to defend your this this wonderful country um, that was something that you know I, even though she was extremely strongly opposed to the draft I think she was just seeing a lot of things that uh, that were the, the the way that libertarians of the day were you know comporting themselves and that didn't didn't resonate with her but I I think it's also you know it's called the uh, the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> that sometimes there's kind of the greatest hostility, not between ideologies that are leagues apart, but that ideologies that are very close to one another and that right. from the outside, you know, you're like, really? What what's what are you arguing about? I mean, right. it's kind of from our perspective, it's kind of the same. And, you know, whether that's libertarianism and objectivism or or this branch of objectivism and that branch of objectivism, I think there can just sometimes be a, a bit of you know, jealousy and 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 feeling that you know it. it I, I've got the true way, and you should be doing it my way. And I I think that she was in many ways um, the founding mother of libertarianism. But like a mother, she had some very strong opinions about how the <laughs> the, the, the child should be behaving. Right. And you know, sometimes you you just have to kind of let it let it go, let it evolve, let it make its mistakes. Uh, and you know, perhaps that a that a blessing. You know, rather than a, uh, a you know a, a very stern judgment would be the best kind of um, developmental uh, <laughs> bequest you could give right. to whether it's a child or a movement that's that's growing and, and finding its maturity. Right, because I I mean even even if there are some uh, a bit of hostilities, I I can't think of a singular woman that has had more influence on the on the liberty movement as a whole than than Ayn Rand has had. So I, I would I would entirely agree with your assessment there. Um what what are some mischaracterizations or misconceptions about some of the ideas that Ayn Rand had? Because I'm sure you hear this all the time. She she was uh she just didn't care about anybody or she was heartless and this sort of stemmed this uh, this this idea that that virtue or that uh, selfishness is is something to be um, uplifted in 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 a in a world where people generally abhor selfishness. What are what are some mischaracterizations that you see there in in many of those uh, arguments? Well, I think one of the prime ones is that when they say that she was upholding greed, right, and uh, that that she was celebrating greed uh, rather than self-interest, and um, that to me is is the biggest mischaracterization and and such an important one that actually um, one of our next draw my life. You know, we've started started doing these draw my life uh, videos whiteboard narrative videos first with Ayn Rand then you know narrating some of the characters from her books and now starting to um, um, anthropomorphize and uh, narrate the stories of values like envy and I wanted to do one now on greed because greed 
is very different. Greed is the way she described it as the desire for the unearned. And she really was felt very strongly about living in a, in a trader society uh, in which, you know, you would, that was the whole oath about entering uh, Galt's Gulch, that you were not going to be sacrificing yourself to somebody else or sacrificing anybody to yourself. And, um, and that means that, you know, you're, you're finding ways to, to have a, a relationships of mutual benefit. And, you know, being greedy is, <laughs> doesn't work very well in, in the long run. You know, maybe it works a little bit you know, for you as a, as a child, as a baby, uh, while your parents are kind of hormonally oriented towards uh, doing, uh, you know, letting you be, be greedy. But that's the first step towards um, preparing a child to be um, a successful trader in society is that, it's, you know, if you're just greedy and you just take from other people and you don't give anything in return, you're not going to get very far. Right. So I, I'd, I'd say that was that's, – that's probably one of the biggest – misinterpretations or and I I, I, I always kind of have a little hesitation when I say misinterpretations because um, I not that I'm given to conspiracy theories but I do feel that you know Ayn Rand was uh, and, and remains as, as you say perhaps the most important um, sort of founding kind of mother of uh, libertarian the libertarian movement and so effective, so effective as, as sort of a, a conversion portal for people um, that, you know, if you wanted to try to, if you were coming in with a political oppo kind of mentality, you, you know, one of the first things I would do is I would shut that down and I would find ways to mischaracterize um, her philosophy or find ways to exaggerate things in it uh, that uh, would be ways of reducing the um, the appeal and the effectiveness of how, how, how she was just switching people on, uh, you know, consistently and inspiring them to, 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 to read more, to learn more and to, to grow in, um, in this worldview. What would you say, in your opinion, would be maybe some of her um, uh, greater faults? Because uh, obviously she's, she's just as human as, as the rest of us are, um, and we can't all be perfect uh, as much as some of us try to be. Um, but what, what would you say where, where she sort of had a, a misstep in some areas? Well, I think I was alluding to it a little bit before, mm -hmm. which was um, that I think as she uh, she went on and particularly as, you know, she was fiercely fighting these battles, she was uh, going out there, she was putting her face forward, she was putting her whole body forward, she was putting her whole soul forward. And just, you know, as, as a, that, I, th I think of, you know, the, that, uh, how on all of the, the old ships that there would be that bust of that, that wooden bust that would be at the, the helm. I mean, that she, she was that, that figure for the, the ship of, of freedom. Um, and as a result, you know, I, maybe she just didn't realize what a toll, you know, that was going to take on her, that she had so much self-confidence and she believed so passionately in what she was doing. Um, but that, 
almost in a way there there was a slightly self-sacrificial aspect of it in that she was getting, you know, <laughs> she's a woman. She's getting punched in the jaw, like punched in the gut. She's getting told how she's horrible and evil and, you know, just such a bad person all the time. And while she's also creating this ideal world, so she's got this ideal world, then she's got the real world. They're just telling her, rejecting her book 12 times and, uh, you know, panning out the shrug and saying it's horrible, even conservatives tell her, comparing her to Nazis, that, um, that this stuff took its toll. It had its scars and that I think as a result, the shields kind of went up. And um, and she just started gravitating towards people that would be um, uh, just friendlier and gentler and, and more positive. Where she needed to get fed, you know, she needed to get refueled, and uh, and and those were often students um, who were in awe. You know, she had a great charismatic force, and that um, but they weren't people that would be criticizing her or maybe, you know, telling her you need to take a shower, right? Or you need to not snap at people or, you know, you you need to not be taking so much for this person without giving something into in return. You know, her husband wasn't somebody who was doing that. Um, the young people around her weren't doing that. And so it's something that, uh, that Thomas Sowell talks about in his book, Vision of the Anointed. He talks about that feedback loop and how essential that is for companies, for, for cultures, for countries. And I think it's also important for individuals. And sometimes very powerful individuals will have that, that feedback loop interrupted. So she, she was cut off from that and maybe she was, she was not open to it. And so at some point I, I think she, uh, she stopped getting, getting, um, being open to that, that, that feedback. And, um, it, 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 it changed her in, in a way that, that was, was not, I think was not, um, constructive, you know, for, for her. And some, some people were getting impressions that she was, um, you know, judge, judge first, judge harshly, judge often. And I, I do think that was also reflected in her philosophy and that um, that is something that uh, David Kelly with um, with his elevation of, of benevolence as a, a primary virtue um, and of its importance in, in trading relationships and gathering as much information uh, as you can from a potential trading partner before you like, boom, you're wrong. <laughs> that um, that that's that's been a, a, a useful uh, addition to the the core canon of of her ideas. Um, so as we begin to wind down just a little bit, I I kind of want to talk about uh, about the the ideas and her legacy in in today's perspective. Um, where do you think uh, the libertarian or liberty movement, I should say, um, can more appropriately apply uh, her ideas and her uh, philosophies where sometimes we might we might get it wrong hmm well i mean i would say one thing would be to to reintroduce her just even as a as a person as a historical figure you know you think of the the popularity of um a, a hayek 
uh, and he almost became a, a touch point, you know, that just like having a picture of Hayek became a way of, of signaling others that, you know, you were an ideological friendly. And I think that bringing Ayn Rand back and um, making people more familiar, giving them the opportunity to be more familiar with her narrative is a good way to maybe start to excite some interest in in delving into some of her literature, um, making it more accessible, right? So people are reading less. Um, so going back to her shortest book, which is the novella Anthem, um, that's something that we've done. And uh, we have a, a graphic novel, which uh, is will be 75 pages. We are... Uh, we are 55 pages in and um, on track for, for publication. And so um, our, our social media is another way, you know, that uh, you, you can complain all you want and wish that, that we weren't in a meme world, but we are. And so um, using that vehicle to, uh, to encapsulate her messaging and then uh, drive people back to um, resources where they can learn more. So I, I think a lot of it is in sort of the, the, the content and just to kind of, um, kind of remain, remain optimistic, you know, and to not, uh, not lose hope. I mean, this is not, it's not been a libertarian movement moment generally, uh, even though that there are, um, things that are happening right now that as, as libertarians, we, you know, we can applaud a lot of the deregulation and a lot of the, uh, the, the tax reform has gone in, in the right way. So I think to just, just to remain positive, expect good things to happen, to, to work across the aisles in so many ways. And I think also, um, and I don't think that this can be emphasized enough for each of us as individuals to be to be ambassadors, to uh, show up, and to lead by example. Even if we uh, don't, we don't want to be role models. We don't think we are role models. Um, we are, you know, whether you are a student in the movement that is in a club and you are trying to get others to be to join your club or stop by your table, or whether you're working in a liberty organization, um, or whether you're out there working in any any kind of job um but that you can become uh, your your own ambassador for these ideas by the choices that that you live in your daily life choices that show how much you as an individual value reason that you respect your mind that you protect your mind that you take care of your mind that you use your mind that you you live individualism all right, you don't go with with the crowd. You live achievement. You live ethical self-interest. You follow what's best for you. You don't take advantage of other people. Um, and so, I, I think that would be the most powerful thing that we could do at a time when we're always thinking, well, "What's Congress going to do? What's the government going to do? What's not going to do? Let's go and protest." Uh, you know, we have so much, so much power as individuals that we just leave on the table. Um, that that we could be exercising to to make the world you know a better place and to lead happier lives. Um, so a few a few lightning round questions, if you will, just uh, sure. some some brief little questions that you can keep your answers as long as short if you, or as you want. Um, I'm just going to keep the ball rolling. 
what uh, I, I'm going to assume this is going to be an Ayn Rand book, but what uh, what book has had the most impact on your life? Well, Atlas Shrugged, mm -hmm. I know. I <laughs> I am paid to say that, but it also happens to have the added advantage of being true, which whenever right. I say that drives David Kelly crazy because he's like doesn't have the added advantage of being true grossman it's either true or it's not well <laughs> it is true and and i'd say the reason is because dagny um was not just such a fabulous businesswoman but that she was able to um make different choices in terms of her romantic life and and recover from disappointment and ultimately you know uh leave those choices that weren't working for her and and pursue the her ideal man um, and where can people uh, find these ideas, find the Atlas Society, find you online and on social media? Find us on Facebook. We are there. I am watching you and I am responding. Um, so take a look at our, our videos that are there. Uh, as well as our, our memes where we've been, as you, you know, if you're following us on Facebook, you're seeing that we're actually increasing our output and uh, increasing and improving the quality of our content. And I, I'm happy to say that uh, even though we don't put out that many pieces of content a day, and we are far from having, you know, the biggest following on on Facebook uh, compared to some of our our larger uh, friends and and uh, big brothers and sisters in the movement. But we have, um, on any given day, we are more likely than not to have uh, the the most engagement overall aggregate. And when I say engagement, I mean likes, comments, shares. The most engagement of any other group on our Facebook page and you break it down to per post and it's kind of, it's unbelievable that mm -hmm. we're, actually our, our, our content is performing better than multiples. Uh, you know, we're on Twitter, not as much. I'm, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. I will reply to you or we're on Instagram as well. And then, um, our site is, is, is there, uh, and we've got a lot of content there. We're in the process of a redesign. And then, you know, we are at a lot of these um, conferences. You know, we were at CPAC. We were at uh, the LibertyCon. Mm -hmm. uh, I um, am often speaking at uh, the SFL regional conferences. I'm going to be speaking at a, a, a Young Americans for Liberty regional conference coming up in San Francisco. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to do a YAL event at uh, George Washington in a couple of weeks. Um, of course, we always have a big, big presence at, at Freedom Fest. So um, you, can, you can find us there. And then I'm also happy to say, I'll give you a little bit of an exclusive. <laughs> All right. October 11th gala, our second gala, annual gala in New York. That um, that I you know hope you'll are even the landing page isn't up yet, but it'll be up within the week. We have uh, Judge Napolitano, Andrew Napolitano, who's a huge Ayn Rand fan, confirmed as our keynote speaker. That's so wonderful. definitely um, come out for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Judge is a, uh, is a is a big hero of mine, and I know many people in this audience. So that will be uh, that'll be quite the event that we'll, we'll certainly uh, certainly link to if you if you send us the information. Uh, for that. So, Jennifer, thank you very much. Um, I, I very, very much enjoyed this conversation. I, I think I've 
learned a few things about Ayn Rand, and I, I know many of the members here in the audience um, have, have learned a few things about Ayn Rand, um, and as well as you. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. It's been my very, very selfish pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and of, of course, for, for everyone in the audience, you can follow me at Caleb Franz on Twitter, follow the show at Mill Liberty. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes so that you'll never miss an episode or an update. Give us a rating and a review. And uh, check us out on Patreon if you support our work at Outset Network. And until next week, we'll see you. <laughs>